G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And last week we talked about Enoch, not that Enoch, the other one. So we've made a start on a long winding trail through the descendants of Cain. And the next stop is Erad. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Great pronunciation, by the way. Most people read that and say Irad. Uh, sound like those uh, American fellows who come back from their tour of duty in uh, the Middle East. And I, I went to Irad. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, our starting point this week is going to be returning to the text that we read last week from Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. But this time we're going to read the entire verse. And I'll throw in the ones on either side of it as well. You know, that's a bargain. Although we'll focus more on verse 18 next week. So this is Genesis 4, verses 16 to 18. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife and she conceived in poor Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad. And Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Well, that's actually Lamech. There is an awful lot there in verse 18, so we're going to take a lot of time to go through that passage in future episodes. Spoiler. Uh, but for now, our focus is on the connection between Cain, Enoch, and Erad. The first thing we read back in verse 16 is that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And for those who came in late, we talked about the land of Nod, which is the biblical Babylon, but we didn't really talk much about the apparent contradiction of settling in the land of wandering. It's a bit of an oxymoron, kind of like the silence was deafening or like freezer burn. I got freezer burn once. It wasn't terribly enjoyable. Good grief. God has told Cain that he will be a fugitive and wanderer in the land. And yet the first thing he does is go and settle down. It has all the hallmarks of deliberate disobedience and rebellion. But we can't really say that because the word God spoke was not an imperative, but more passive in its delivery. So this is what would happen to Cain. We see Cain here stripped of his power. And instead of being the active agent in his story and the protagonist of Genesis 4, we see him instead as being forced to accept the fate that will befall him. Cain retreats into the wilderness, singing, I was born under a wandering star. And I'm sure he had a lovely senior voice. Uh, you could say he becomes conspicuously absent. Commentators in the past have made much about Cain's apparent defiance in this settling down, which has been construed as the establishment of cities. But we have to be careful not to read too much into the text. A nomad can settle in a tent. It doesn't have to be a city. Where does the idea of city come from? It comes from the following verse. As we read on, we hear the following. In verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So according to this understanding of the text, Cain built the first city because the natural reading of this text, as you just heard it, says quite plainly that Cain was the builder of a city. You know what's coming though, right? Sure do. You're about to tell us that's completely wrong. And then you're going to proceed to dismantle our entire understanding of what was a pretty straightforward scripture, turn the whole thing on its head and somehow reconstruct it into something that makes a heck of a lot more sense, and you're going to enjoy it, you sick, sick man. You know me too well. You might wonder what would make anyone question a straightforward reading of this text, and there are a couple of good reasons. First, I'm going to start with one that should be apparent if you were listening to our previous episode about Enoch. You remember what I said about the use of the name Enoch and where it came from? 
Yeah, didn't you say that the first time anyone ever used a name, anything like Enoch, was in the Bible, in the book of Exodus? That's right, I did. Andrew also said that the stories that we are reading here in Genesis are really, really old and predate the Bible by a very long time. That's right, I did. So how could there be a city named Enoch before anyone had used the name Enoch? That's right. Oh, good question. And the simple answer is they didn't. Okay, I get it. This is one of those situations where the author has changed the name of the city to make a point. It was probably called something else before, I guess. You are correct. And no, they didn't build this city on rock and roll. Oh, what a good song. Uh, So whatever the original name of the city was, the author has changed it to Enoch. Well, yes and no. The author actually changed the name of the city to Irad. What? 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 How can you say that? It says right there that Cain named the city after his son, Enoch. It's right there. So I mentioned a minute ago that there are a couple of good reasons why anyone might question a straightforward reading of the text. Here's the other one. We have some manuscript issues here. Or the thut plickens, or the plot thickens, or the pot chickens. Yeah, so there are a couple of features of Hebrew grammar which have been overlooked traditionally in the rendering of this verse into English. Let's read it again, just verse 17 in our translation. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Okay, so the first issue we have is that our understanding of English grammar means that we completely overlook the arrangement that we should expect to see in Hebrew. I'm talking about the issue of which person is the subject of each sentence. When we read it in English, we find that Cain is the person who is named at the beginning of the sentence, and we read that first sentence right through. Then the next sentence begins with, when he built, and we just assume that we're still talking about Cain because Cain was the main character in the previous sentence. That means the city has to be named after Cain's son, Enoch. But... If we're reading the Hebrew text and listening to it the way a Hebrew listener would hear it, then we're forced to transition from Cain to Enoch by the end of that first sentence because as soon as you introduce a new character, you've shifted the focus to the person that you've introduced and they become the subject of whatever follows. So Cain is gone now and he's disappeared from the narrative without so much as an acknowledgement of his passing because the focus now is on Enoch and on his achievements. Yeah, beat a cane, hit the road, take Jack with you. We don't want you and we don't need you. The text is pretty emphatic. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son. Enoch built the city. Enoch called it after the name of his son. But wait a minute, you reckon it fixed the problem in the grammar by establishing that it was Enoch who built the city? But how can you say that when he named it after his son, Enoch? Does he have the same name as his son or something? I thought Enoch's son was Erad. Well, we fixed one problem, but there's more to sort out, as you've noticed. The first one was just the problem created by our English reading of the text. We still have two more issues to sort out. These problems always seem to come in pairs when we have scribal errors or manuscript issues. The first one's the problem that got the scribal confused in the first place. And the second one's the apparently dodgy job they did of trying to work the problem out. Or was it actually genius? Think about it this way. Put yourself in the position of a scribe who loves God and can't stand the Babylonians. 
all day long these Babylonians keep talking about how great they are because they built the first city and they're so proud of it that you're just itching for an opportunity to have a laugh at their expense. Sure, I can imagine that. Now, the normal way that you would talk about a man and his son in typical Hebrew grammar would be to say, for example, Abraham and Isaac, his son. You'll notice that the name of the son comes before the terminology that clarifies the relationship. So it's Isaac, his son, rather than his son, Isaac. However, our text has preserved the reading his son, Enoch, in this case. Why would you do that? I'm going to suggest that the word Enoch wasn't even supposed to be there. It was added as an anti-Babylonian polemic, and you would do that because it ignores and ridicules the founding city, the cornerstone of Babylonian culture and religion, the city of Eridu. I'm sorry, did you say Agadu? Uh, Eridu, and we'll talk about Eridu in a moment, but let's just finish resolving our textual issues here before we move on. Remember that song we used to sing at school? Agadu, do, 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 something about a pineapple in a tree. Yeah, and I will thank you for probably dropping that. So <laughs> the last thing I need is that particular earworm rattling around in my head for the next week. Removing the superfluous addition of the name Enoch at the end of the verse and remembering the rules of Hebrew grammar that we've picked up so far, let's read this again and see what it's telling us. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When Enoch built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son. To Enoch was born Erad. When we read it like that, we understand that this man Enoch is the guy who built the city and he named it after his son, whose name was Erad. Therefore, the name of the city is Eridu. So there's an intentional play on the name of the city because the name Erad is constructed from two words. The first one is Ir, which means watchful place or city place of watchers. It's important to note that this only works in the context of an Aramaic speaking culture, which is the situation we find in the Exilic period and later, but not before then. The second word is Radar, which means dominion, as we find it in Genesis chapter 1, and the mandate given to the first humans. Combining them, we get Radar, which is a feminine form, but since we're speaking about a man, we lose the feminine ending to give it the masculine form, we end up with Irad. And the connotation there is that this name means city of dominion, which will come to reflect Babylon itself. It's a negative connotation directed toward Babylon and insinuating the kind of dominion that causes oppression. And for the keen observers among you, you will have noticed that I threw in the idea of watchers back there. It wasn't accidental by any means. The Aramaic word for watcher is identical to the Hebrew word for city. But again, you're only going to pick that up if you're living in the exilic or post-exilic period and familiar with both Hebrew and Aramaic languages, which is why I stress again and again that the first audience of this text had to have been an audience placed in that context. And the watchers, those are the guys who are described in the book of Daniel chapter 4 and in the book of First Enoch as the sons of God. In the case of First Enoch specifically, they're the ones who took human wives and created the Nephilim in Genesis 6, right? Right. Not only that, but the word Nephilim is in itself an Aramaic word as well. So there are all kinds of ideas being thrown around here in the name Erad. We have cities, we have corrupt dominion, we have the watchers, and all of this is, of course, building towards what is going to come in Genesis 6. So as I've said before, if you're finding this fascinating so far, don't go anywhere. You ain't seen nothing yet. So getting back to the issue of the superfluous mention of the name Enoch at the end of that sentence. We've already established that the city was actually Eridu. And the author was playing with words to create Irad, which tells you a bit about what he thinks of cities in general, and in particular, the most sacred city in Mesopotamian civilization. 
But then a scribe at some point has gone even further to erase the fame of Babylon by de-emphasizing the name of the first city, Eridu, and taking advantage of the ambiguous wording around the relationship between Enoch and Erad so that he can call the city Enoch instead of Erad. Why would you do that? Yeah, Tim, why would you do that? The simple answer is that the name Enoch has never been attributed to any city that ever existed in the ancient Near East. Remember what I was saying about how that name never existed anywhere until it was written in the Bible in the context of the Exodus? And so everybody who hears this text is going to say, I never heard of this place. Instantly, the reputation of Babylon is shattered because their legacy, which is deeply connected to the founding of the first city, Eridu, is wiped away. Now, I would understand if all this seems a little bit far-fetched, and that's okay, but I promise to you, but by the time we get to the end of verse 18, which we're going to start looking at next week, you'll understand exactly what's going on here. This is polemical literature at its finest. Now, while we're here, we should probably say a little something about cities. In the biblical context, cities were a man-made construction, which in the ancient Near East was primarily defined by the presence of a wall around a collection of small buildings which housed the urban community. And the wall, as the defining feature of the city, was designed to protect the inhabitants of the city from outsiders and to preserve whatever people and material possessions you might have inside. Most people didn't live in the cities because they relied on agriculture, right, to, to sustain themselves. So they lived in the open country and cities were mostly reserved for the wealthy elites and the military. I remember you talking about that in your wonderful book. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's why people have tended to misunderstand the conquest narrative in the Bible. They have this idea that everybody lives in the city. So when Joshua and the Israelites slaughtered everybody in the cities, it sounded like they were killing civilians. The city provides a picture of mistrust in biblical thinking because the constant teaching of Scripture is that if you trust God, you don't need to worry about anything else. And the city is an extension of the insecurity and desire for control that creeps into the heart of those who don't trust the Scripture or God. I mentioned earlier that the name of the word used for city in Hebrew is defined by this idea of watchfulness, which gives you the impression of a general sense of unease and the idea that you can't rest in the city. When you live in the city, there are artificial lines. People have lamps out. Somebody's always awake. People are doing things in the time of day when God-fearing people should be asleep. When we consider that the dominant paradigm in Israelite thinking is shepherdism, and looking after one another, relying on God to provide and having no need for artificial protection or even light, we can understand that for faithful Israelites, the city painted a picture of everything that was wrong with the world, especially when it came to the abuse of technology to increase sin and depravity, which is something we're going to be talking about as we continue through this chapter and subsequent episodes of the podcast. The city provides refuge, and we talked about that in relation to Cain, who murdered the shepherd Abel and his desire to seek out some kind of protection. So it's no wonder that his descendants should be the ones to build cities. The city is the kind of place where human rulers ensure your protection, and then they cripple you with taxation. Cities were usually governed by ruthless kings who were a law unto themselves and whose financial and legal oppression was almost impossible to break free from. And I've spoken many times on this podcast about the Epic of Gilgamesh, which provides a perfect illustration of this kind of thing. Gilgamesh was a typical Mesopotamian king who ruled fiercely and ruthlessly, oppressing his people, taking their wives and doing as he pleased, and took great pride in the fact that he had constructed the monumental wall around the city of Uruk, which actually still stands to this day. And after all the great exploits of Gilgamesh, he had to come to terms with his mortality and eventually conceded that the only way in which he would live forever was in the remembrance of the city wall that he had built. You could say it was a living memorial. He's still doing oxymorons. That's positively depressing. 
So anyway, we understand the concept of walls and fortifications representing a lack of trust in God, but the other thing that really raises the ire of the scriptural author is the futility of these measures, because if God wants to achieve his purpose, he's going to do it whether you build a wall or not. And that's what's really going to be driven home when we get to Genesis 11. Of course, the main point of the material here in Genesis 4 is the reminder that being watchful from the towers and being vigilant on the walls will not prevent God's anointed from coming to lay waste to everything you build on that day when the Lord brings his judgment, a point that is only made in the context of the exile. And certainly nothing prevented the king of Babylon from coming to take Jerusalem despite all the walls and towers and fortifications and watches on the wall. When the time had come, God's judgment was passed and the walls could not be trusted. So we can see how the scriptural author is trying to make a point of saying that all of this, the grandeur and the splendor of Babylonian civilization and technology, was futility, just like Cain, who has now disappeared from the narrative permanently. It's all going to come to nothing, but God's will be done. You know what, Tim? I'm really starting to enjoy these genealogies. There's so much cool information in them. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. The next genealogy won't come around till next season, so you'll have to hang on and wait for it. What do you mean? We're not even halfway through this genealogy yet. We've still got all those other people that get mentioned in the rest of the chapter. Yeah, I'm aware of that, but you did specifically say genealogies, and what follows after this is not a genealogy. What? Stay tuned next week. Oh, boy. All right. Well, until then, let's do some Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. We have a question from the Fallen Angels and Nephilim group on Facebook. Neil asked, in Hebrews 1.5, it says that angels are not called sons. How does one reconcile this with the teaching that in Genesis 6, the sons of God means angels? All right. Well, thanks, Neil, for sending in that question. It's a good one. I guess our starting point should be the scripture. So let's have a look at the two passages of scripture that you've mentioned, and I'll make a few observations about them. We'll begin in Genesis 6. And that famous passage that we all know so well, reading from chapter 6, Verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so that's a fairly straightforward passage with pretty simple terminology. That's fairly easy to read on the face value and understand, except, of course, for the term Nephilim, which, as we know, was best translated in the King James Version as giants. What catches many interpreters of this passage is the fact that individual words on their own may have a meaning or value that's different to that found in phrases, where the terms are compounded together in the form of idiomatic expression. So... In this passage, we have that construction, sons of God, which is found only on rare occasions in the Hebrew Bible. And what we're going to see is that if you break that phrase down into individual words, you end up missing the point made by the application of the entire phrase in biblical usage. All right, so let's talk about sons. The Hebrew term there, bene, comes from the root bana, which means to build or establish. Typically, you find this in connection with human beings. And what you find there is the idea that your family is spoken of as your house. 
And we find that kind of terminology in scripture all the time in phrases like the house of Israel, the house of Benjamin or whatever. So the idea of building a house is to establish it by building it up. And of course, your house is made of bricks. Bricks are cast in a mold. Each one is like the other because they come from the same mold. So the idea is that if you have a son, then you've established your house by strengthening it with more of the same. You've established your family with an heir to your household. You are, in fact, making a statement that the future of your household is secure because the one who comes after you is just like you. And that leads us to the other common use of the term bene as it is translated sons. If a son is one that comes from the original and is like the original, then someone who shares your attributes and can do what you do can be called your son. And we're not talking about a biological connection anymore. This is the idea of having a similar nature or being in a similar class. This is not about being identical or equal. You would usually find this kind of terminology in the case of the students of a school, for example, or anyone who's training under a master. Interesting. So do you get examples of that in the scriptures? Oh, sure. For example, the prophets often had a group of apprentices under them learning prophecy, taking note of what the prophet had to say, and these were called the sons of the prophets. And they were not in a position to be called prophets yet, and they were certainly not equal to their master, but they were being trained and they would eventually step into that role in their own right. As another example, you find the son of the king who has the authority of the king while he's on the king's business, but he's definitely not equal to the king. So we have this idea that as a son, you can be of the same kind, but not necessarily related and not necessarily equal to the person you're said to be the son of. Yeah, that, that's important because when we start talking about being a son of God, there are certain distinctions we have to make, and those are not based on what we know about being a son, but what we know about God. And that's why I say that these individual words take on a lot more nuance when used as part of an idiomatic expression. Now, I've spoken before on several occasions about the uniqueness of God and the way that the word Elohim is not God's name, but a reference to the kind of being that God is, if we can even say such a thing. The word Elohim refers to a class of being, and specifically what makes an Elohim distinct from anything else is the idea of not being necessarily embodied by nature. And again, I've talked about how there are various classes of Elohim, and they include the lesser gods that Yahweh created, and the angels, and even the spirits of humans who've died. There are about half a dozen different classifications, and Yahweh is in a class of one being unique in certain attributes, such as being all-knowing, omnipresent, and all-powerful, among others. But the fact that Yahweh is species-unique does not mean that he cannot have other lesser gods who share some of his attributes, and they are called sons because of the fact that they share certain attributes of Yahweh, along with certain roles and responsibilities that they perform, and not on the basis of any kind of biological connection. So the sons of God in the Old Testament framework are those who share certain attributes of God, including but not limited to being by nature non-embodied and having a function of governance over the world. So that term sons of God is a technical term to describe beings of that nature who perform that function. All right, but what about angels? Now, while we're still in the Hebrew Bible, let's talk about angels. Angels in the Bible are referred to as malachim or malak in the singular, and that is a term referring to a messenger. Anyone can be a messenger. They don't need to be a divine being. So it's the context of the passage in which we find malak that determines whether or not we're talking about a divine being as a messenger. Now, that's a really useful distinction to have in mind when reading the Hebrew Bible, but it gets us in trouble when we transfer to the New Testament and start reading in Greek. And again, you'll have heard me say this before in previous episodes, but anyone who's trying to sell you on the idea that Greek is such a superior language with all this technical accuracy really hasn't dealt with the issues because Greek gets really clumsy when we start talking about divine beings. 
suddenly everything's an angel and all the nuance and distinction that we had in the Hebrew is lost. So when we get into the Second Temple period and everybody's using Greek, we find that there just isn't the vocabulary required to draw distinction between different classes of divine beings. We have the term angels used for pretty much everything. And the problem with that is that the word angelos, which is where we get angel, is just like the Hebrew malak. It just means messenger. So when you read the Septuagint or any translation derived from it, you'll find the term for angels used instead of sons, which is misleading because we're getting two technical terms that are not equivalent being confused here. And a messenger, by definition, is simply someone who communicates on behalf of somebody else, which is a far cry from the kind of functional distinction we have with something like the sons of God, who have a similar ontological nature in that they're non-embodied, but they have a very different function, which makes them distinct from angelos or malachim. And you can see examples of that kind of function when you read 1 Kings chapter 22 or Daniel chapter 4, for example. Okay, but how does that relate to what we see in Hebrews chapter 1, which Neil was asking about in his uh, question? Let's find out. We're going to talk about the text in Hebrews now and see how this understanding fits with what we read there in chapter 1. I'm just going to read the whole chapter because it's full of distinctions that help to make this point. So you've really got to take the whole thing. As I read this, I'm just going to interject here and there with some notes. From verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. All right, so what's happening here is the author is saying that there is some similarity between Christ and the angels in the sense that God has spoken through Christ in order to bring his message to mankind. But then he goes on to talk about how Christ is distinct from angels, and he does this by making a direct association with God the Father. He does this by showing how Jesus is so much like the Father that he represents him exactly. And that's not just a matter of ontology, but a function, as we see when he begins to talk about Jesus as the heir of all things and creator of the world. Remember what we talked about earlier with regard to the function of a son as the establishment of the Father's house. Uh, on to verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, okay, so here we have more language of equivocation with God in terms of that functional ability to do what God does in creation and in atonement. Christ also has the unique distinction of sitting at God's right hand, which once again is the function of a son enacting the will of the father. To sit at the right hand is to be the one who does what the father wants done. Uh, moving on to verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So verse 4 there is obviously saying that Jesus Christ is superior to angels and then he goes on to explain why. He references Psalm 2, or if you're reading from the Greek canon, it's the latter half of Psalm 1. This is the text he's using to back up his claim of Christ being the inheritor of the world. And again, we have this idea of a father establishing the son. Making somebody your son doesn't just make them a son, it makes you a father. So this language of being begotten is a reference to the establishment of this functionality, which occurred during the incarnation of Christ and is connected directly to his obedience. It's not about birth or adoption or being created or anything like that. That's why when Jesus goes to get baptized, we have the voice from heaven and God declaring that Jesus is his son. You can see this a bit more clearly if you actually read the text from Psalm 2. So I'm just going to quote a few verses here before we return to Hebrews. Uh, this is verses 6 through 8 in Psalm 2. 
I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So that just makes it clear, really, that this is a case of like father, like son, isn't it? And the point is that this is a unique distinction applied only to Jesus Christ and not to any other kind of divine being. Right, right. Um, and from, from verse 6, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. It should be pretty clear that if the angels are required to worship Jesus Christ, then he's clearly superior to them. Uh, and verse 7 of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is a really interesting reference to throw in there. We talked about the way that this connects back to Genesis 3. If you remember the conclusion to season three of the podcast where I talked about this with relation to the cherubim stationed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden and the flame that has the whirling sword or destroyer. The author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 104, which has thematic connections to Habakkuk 3 and the divine entourage language around the Canaanite deities, Dever and Reshef. And the point of all that is to say that God uses the lesser gods to be his servants, not his equals. So you can see how the Greek term angelos is polemical here because it completely destroys the status of these lesser gods, which would in Hebrew have been referred to as Beneha Elohim and are now simply relegated to the rank of messengers. That's a deep cut. Uh, moving on to verse 8. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I was just talking about how the author is belittling the gods of the nations by referring to them as mere messengers. And now he rubs it in by explaining that it was the virtue of Christ that really made him distinct from those lesser gods. Uh, back to verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. We get some cosmological language here with the foundation of the earth, which is a reference to the order of things and the governance of the world. So we're talking about the establishment of the principalities and powers, which are supposed to maintain order in the cosmos under God. And now the author is saying that Christ is going to cause them all to lose their position, which upends the order of the world so that it can be gloriously recreated under the authority of Christ. And again, just to be clear, we're talking about dominion and authority here, not about the material elements of the universe. This isn't a science lesson. It's not about mountains and pillars of rock under the ground or something. The eternal God who does not change is going to remain constant while the authority structures and the powers of the world will be destroyed. And since Christ is the unique son of God, he is also uniquely uncreated, eternal and unchanging like his father. And just to finish off the chapter from verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Once again, the author is talking about this sit at my right hand language, which is obviously a unique position to be in and that applies only to Jesus Christ. And this is in contrast to the function of the angels who are supposed to be bringing mankind into the knowledge of God. That's all really good, but we are running out of time. So let's just put a bow on it. Bring it home, Tim. Bring it home.
So with all of that said, to answer the question in a nutshell, there are various nuances in the terminology of sonship which get applied in different ways to different divine beings. And that's why Jesus has this unique position as being co-equal with the Father, whereas the rest of them are subservient to him, in spite of the fact that they're all called sons. The author of Hebrews is going to great pains to establish that the sonship of Jesus Christ is a unique kind of sonship reserved for the creator and heir of the cosmos. Once again, with regard to the Greek terminology of the sons of God being translated as angels of God, that only works because angels are a class of divine beings that share some of the attributes of God, which makes them sons of God at the ontological level as spirits. However, when we consider the sons of God as divine beings, which share God's attributes and functions to a higher degree than that of his divine messengers, we can see that they're clearly distinct. And then, of course, we need to make an even higher level of distinction for someone who is the exact representation of God in every aspect of his nature and function, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is why he is called the only begotten Son. I know this stuff can be a bit confusing, so hopefully that wasn't too hard to wrap your head around. Thanks again to Neil for the question, and keep sending them in. Absolutely. Uh, so, listeners, you can have your own question featured on this show by contacting us online any way you can, whether it's through the website, giantanswers.com, or on social media. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Ah, yeah, do, 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 push pineapple, shake the tree. That's Agar, all the singing do, you'll do. get from me. Push pineapple, grind coffee, to the left, to the right, jump up and down and to the knees, come and dance every night, sing with a hula melody. Lovely. Yeah. You'll be singing that all week. <laughs> it's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, GraveForsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback, Twitter. Check out the other podcasts at RavenCreekSC.com. Please welcome us on socials, don't forget to subscribe to the Friends Club Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. We have a Christmas party, 20 people, so we're doing darts. That's called right. Flight Club in the city. Well, uh, we had our Christmas function on Friday and that was pretty low-key. It was enjoyable. You know, uh, it was a substantial... Uh, Tab on the bar, which we successfully defeated. <laughs> and um, somebody came up with the idea of throwing skittles at the beers of our colleagues on the opposite table to try and 
pot shot their drink with a skittle. We'd all got, you know, given boxes of lollies. And, uh, yeah, that turned into a uh, skittle-throwing frenzy. Where was this? At a uh, reputable establishment that uh, I shall not name on the air, but um, <laughs> uh, let's, let's just say it's uh, known for uh, sailing boats and wealthy people who like to sit by the river and talk about sailing boats. I, um, I found a Facebook group today for owners of 12-foot-tall skeletons. Like, you know, people in the U.S. are, like, buying them, I guess, from Walmart or something. Oh, know, okay. Get, you know, whatever shop they have, their Home Depot or something. Oh, yes. And, uh, you know, they use them for Halloween or whatever. And uh, people keep them up all year and just decorate them according to the season. So you've got these people all over America that have these 12-foot skeletons in their front yard. Right. And, you know, they're dressed as the Grinch or dressed as uh, Father Christmas. or you know, so That was quite novel. Um, yes, yeah, Spirit Halloween is probably the shop that they get them from. Uh, it's like their version of kind of uh, slightly fancier red dot that's like party kind of themed. Oh, yeah. Um, they specialise in that kind of, yeah, spirit Halloween. Uh, kind of like the $2 special. shop, but it just turns up for like a month of the year and then disappears. Yeah, they've actually got a movie coming out about some kids who get trapped in a spirit Halloween store and then the costumes come to life or something. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll, uh, I'll keep my eye out for that one. Yeah, it looks atrocious. <laughs> Starting with egg, uh, do, 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 pineapple, something, shake the tree. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I, no. I can't read Eridu without thinking Agadu. Or Eridu not. Yes, very, very clever. Apologies in advance for our listeners. Because I put the outtakes at the end, so they won't get the apology until the apology is in arrears. We're a bit slow today. Um, I almost said it's a bit of an axiomoron. That's, that's not a word. Uh, you could say he becomes conspicuously absent. Yes, like that axiomoron. I haven't seen that guy around. When I do, I'll be watching out for that say, act. Say hi to him from me. Yes, the axiomoron. You know what, Tim? I'm really starting to enjoy the Jeep, these Jeeps. I love a good Jeep. You know what, Tim? I'm really starting to... <laughs> I thought you said jeans. You're enjoying these jeans. Well, I'm wearing shorts. Um, but I, I, I like your jeans, assuming you're wearing some. I can only see you from the... Nipples up. Okay. All I can tell you is that I'm not wearing jeans. Okay. You know what, Tim? I'm really starting to enjoy. Really starting to enjoy these genie allergies. Is it genie allergies or allergies? I know we had this discussion. Allergies. No, that's what I thought. Um, like hay fever. <laughs> Keep up, man. Come on. Gluten intolerant. <laughs> okay. Here we go. And again, just to be clear, uh, I already said that. To the left, to the right, jump up and down and to the knees. Come and dance every night, sing with a hula melody.